You're listening to Shine On, a podcast presented by Solar Power Europe, the European Association for Solar Power. Join us as we shine a light on the latest developments in the solar sector. Hello and welcome to Shine On, a podcast by Solar Power Europe. I'm your host, Lucas Clark Memler, and in our new series, Sustainability Champions, we are shining a spotlight on people and companies leading the charge with sustainability efforts. In this episode, I have the great pleasure of speaking with Jochen Hauf, Vice President of Solar Power Europe and Director of Corporate Strategy, Energy Policy and Sustainability for Baiva RE. Thanks for being here today, Jochen. Well, thank you for the invite, Lucas. Great. And can I first ask where you're calling in from? Sure. I'm from my home office, where, which I haven't left, it feels like, for seven months now, close to Berlin. Okay. And can you see the sun from your home office? Oh, yes. And the garden, fortunately. So I, I'm not really complaining because I know others don't have a garden. But yeah, I still miss my, my office and my team mostly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we do too at Solar Power Europe. So why don't we begin with you introducing yourself to our listeners and discussing your role at Baiva RE? Sure, gladly. I, I start base, maybe because our topic is sustainability. I go back to my education. I'm trained as an environmental economist, actually, and I have a, a second degree as a Master of Science in Environmental Science and Policy. So I uh, try to get the full bandwidth from economic to more also science-based and policy questions in my education which is already well over well over 20 years ago unfortunately then i was a business consultant with carney for 14 years focusing very much on the energy sector not only on renewables and and environmental topics but also very standard issues strategy advice reorganization optimization strategy definitions for gas, electricity, even lignite mining companies. So I've seen a broad range of energy issues, but then I switched and focused basically fully on renewable energy and corporate sustainability also while still with Carney. And I got to know Baiva as my client, Baiva RE, more than seven years ago by now, where I helped them with a a restructuring concept for the solar trade business, the solar wholesalers where the market had collapsed in Germany by 85% and they, they needed a, a restructuring program. So, so I advised them on that and then got the opportunity, but also the challenge to implement that for Baiva RE. Then, so I switched sides. I, I joined my, my client. I was then an interim managing director for a year for three companies, had to conduct a restructuring. And then, so I always say after one year of, of tough work, I got the reward, which is my current position. <laughs> so the responsibility for our global strategy, our energy policy work, and our sustainability effort, which neatly brings together my passion for the environment with my training in energy and policy matters. Mm, excellent. So you've seen the many different faces of the sector and I imagine of uh, sustainability as well. Yes, actually, uh, good you mention it. In sustainability, I also had a role in, in Carney in the management consulting to to work with this topic and to help the implementation of Carney's pledge back in 2007, eight uh, already. So that wasn't easy in a global and American-based 
management consulting company. But they were f- even further along than, than the renewable energy company where, where, where I would have expected that maybe that topic is top of the agenda. But it turned out that at Bivar RE, uh, I, I could do, I could profit from the experiences I had uh, done also internally at Carney. So that's clearly a continuum also in my, in my uh, career that I, in both of my previous employers ended up being, being responsible for implementing sustainability measures. Absolutely. But maybe talking a little bit more about sustainability at Baiva RE, could you talk about successes? You know, for instance, I know that you have already achieved 100% carbon neutrality ahead of schedule. So certainly successes, but also if you could touch on some of the challenges that you have experienced and also that, you know, uh, lie ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, gladly, the 100% carbon compensation, as we like to call it, because the the term neutrality might always be a bit misleading. Obviously, our our operations and our travels are not neutral, but we compensate them. And we didn't really do that ahead of schedule. We just did it very quickly because, frankly, it's not very complicated. It's It's a decision to, A, obviously measure the carbon footprint, in a, in a diligent way and then invest in and define the quality criteria for the investment in carbon compensation certificates. So that's what we did. So we could implement that very quickly. When I, when I took the role in, in 2017, I, I asked my management that I would, you know, want to combine that role with an object, uh, with a, a, an ambitious target. And so for me, that we are as a renewable energy, company 100% carbon compensated. We did that then within one year. That's mostly possible because the carbon tracking was already in some advanced stage. So we didn't start from scratch then. And and so we could do that quickly, but then also clearly needed to define now a, a framework where we say we move beyond carbon. And as you asked me for challenges, maybe the first challenge is to, to really get the understanding also of a broader set of management that just because we are a renewable energy company does not mean that we are already good and doing everything perfectly, but that there are things that we also need to address, that we need to improve our ways, that we need to invest in the effort in reporting and and tracking down data points and information throughout our global company, we're now in in 28 countries, 2,700 employees. It's not a huge operation, but it's significant in terms of complexity. So that is an investment from the entire company to to invest the effort to really get reliable data so that whatever we then do and claim can also be proven and audited and stands up as 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 a true statement and not just some slogan. So that challenge to convince those who are, think of themselves as already being good that they should yet invest in getting better and that with green business model where uh, really 2,600 people are spending 100% of their time working on renewable energy, there is still a significant gap to what we can and should do and that we need to address this very actively. But needless to say, I wouldn't be in that position if my management wouldn't have thought that <laughs> that was necessary. So we overcame that and, and we have a full commitment of the board and, and the broad uh, management and also many, many of our employees who are very actively 
engaging in, in that effort. Certainly. I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about that carbon compensation, because I think that, you know, I'm sure that's something that listeners and other companies would be interested to hear more about, perhaps. Well, I think it's almost a staple by now. Uh, many have claimed that, and that's partly the problem, because the, the, the supply of good quality, reliable and, and verifiable carbon certificates is, is limited. And with more people claiming neutrality and making pledges, there's a certain scarcity here, and there's also the risk that we all lose credibility if the quality of these certificates drops and, and is not monitored appropriately. So the first step is, however, and there's often a bit of confusion around that, uh, if you think about green electricity, which is what we produce, yeah, many people think, well, okay, we just switch to green energy and then we are carbon compensated or what, right? And that is not the case, that there's one thing of of working on your your emission footprint. And obviously, it's not only carbon, it's all the greenhouse gases. But for brevity's sake, I, I just refer to carbon footprint, but it's the greenhouse gas footprint. And we need to try to reduce this. We need to reduce our energy consumption with energy efficiency. We need to then whatever electricity use we can't avoid, we need to switch this to green supply. And believe it or not, even in a renewable energy company, we found pockets of gray energy use in certain geographies, in certain offices where maybe we were not even the renters uh, or the, 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 the electricity consumption was included in the rent. And the building owner, who was not us, just had a gray electricity contract. Or we're operating in countries in Asia Pacific, for example, in some where there is no green electricity offer to be had on the market. Yeah. So these are things that, that need to be addressed. And then you need to look, obviously, at all your other sources of where you consume energy and also, obviously, carbon emissions, an important factor, also your flight emissions. And this is something we have included, even though our commitment is on scope two. Uh, we do include also the, the indirect emissions from all our business travel, including flights and hotels and so on, in our commitment. And that's a, an entire different ball game to compensate that. So once you have that accounting done properly, then you need to look at, okay, with which projects can I credibly compensate for the emissions that we still emit? And that's a, a process of getting getting to know different companies who offer this. We work with one of the most respected of such companies in Germany, Atmosphere. I don't think it's a, it's a mistake to make advertisement for them. Uh, they uh, have a, a long and well-deserved reputation of being a a quality leader. So that's one aspect. But also we, we always try to have a portfolio of different projects we're sourcing certificates from so that if something pops up in the course of a project, at least it's not affecting all our compensation of a given year. Yeah. Also, we always buy a bit more than we would need based on the accounting, just so that we have a buffer in case some of our carbon footprint accounting should have gone wrong and some data was missing and it always is always something is always off right uh, so we build in a, a bunch of buffers and we, we diversify the portfolio also across technologies across types of projects so we have some renewable energy projects obviously in there but we also have reforestation projects in there because we do believe that reforestation is part of of what we need ultimately to come to 
uh, zero carbon or even negative carbon emissions. So we should work also on improving the quality of, of forestry projects rather than just condemning them to be, you know, maybe too, too cheap and too, too simply thought. I think there are quality differences in forestry projects as well. But I'd like to talk about sustainability a little bit more generally, because we know that it's, you know, sustainability means more than simply reducing your carbon footprint. So perhaps one way to talk about this is about how BIVA aligns the sustainability framework with UN Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, and how this extends beyond simply, as I said, the environmental component. Sure. And that's a step we took last year. We, we published internally, uh, published, but it should also be on our website, a set of seven priority SDGs. So we, we made this conscious step, which we call Beyond Carbon, where we added SDGs such as biodiversity, life on land SDG, or the one on fair the social conditions in, in the work, innovation in infrastructure, impact on the communities, and so on. So we, we, we selected this set of seven core SDGs that are still closely connected to our business. And, but they also address a couple of issues of how, for example, we build not only solar, but also wind parks uh, and how that affects biodiversity at the location and how this affects the communities in which we build these projects and where we do occupy space and have an impact on the landscape. And what can we do to design these plants in a way that minimizes that impact, maybe even improves the biodiversity if you think of solar farms, depending on what that was done with that land prior to that, you can obviously, under the solar panels and etc., do a lot of good for insects, for the fauna and flora. And can we do better in, in consciously making this part of our projects? Also, the community, who profits from the project? Is it only us and our investors and to an extent our suppliers, but or is it the local community? Will we have a component where green electricity generated locally is also made available to our neighbors? Do we open up a part of the, the project to investment by, for example, using crowdfunding platforms like our colleagues in France, for example, did successfully, so that also neighbors can participate in the financial success of a given project? And overall participation do we inform properly? Are there ways where people can address their concerns during construction or prior to, to permitting and so on? All this should be a very conscious process. And as renewable energy company, we do have the responsibility not only to, to displace fossil fuel and create and generate carbon-free electricity. We also have the responsibility to show that we respect the communities in which we build and, and take into account all these factors I have just mentioned. Mm. And of course, this is one of the, the very positive things about solar is those added biodiversity elements, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, and especially when it comes to you know, applications that we like to talk about at Solar Power Europe, including floating solar and, and agri-solar. And I think that that's an element that's, that's you know, very positive when it comes to sustainability. And, and on that note, I mean, we, we can kind of go in this direction anyway, because I'd like to talk about 
the solar sector and sustainability more generally. So, you know, whether you want to mention specific applications or even just, you know, the role that sustainability should play in guiding the sector. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, absolutely. And let me start with the challenges again. I mean, yes, you can do a lot of good, but you also have it. We, as solar uh, sector, we do have an impact. If we, if we uh, build a solar plant and, and, and a large one, some trees will usually be cut down. Yes, uh, because we don't build our solar plants under in the shade, right? So where do you replace those? What do you do to make up for that? Can you design it in a way to avoid that impact is a question, right? And, and often, you know, you, you put a fence around the system because kids shouldn't play with the, with the cables and, and theft is, is an issue in some kind. So how big a fenced in area is still okay for a community to live next to where do the dog walkers go uh, where, what what traditional routes of of commutes of whatever do we do we intersect and so on i mean that's just uh, to not paint it too rosy and only say okay there's so many more lizards here than on the intensively farmed area but we also have a couple of negative impacts that we have to you know acknowledge and then mitigate But you ask broader, and obviously, and I, I didn't mention that yet, but a very important component for us is the social aspect also mm -hmm. within our company and how we treat our people, the topic of diversity, of gender equality. This is a, a, another priority topic for us where we have begun to consciously manage that. And again, this is something a bit, being a company that is used to feel that we're the good guys anyways, sometimes you... <laughs> You uh, let it slip, yeah, and, and you don't manage, for example, gender balance and, and diversity as explicitly as other companies, maybe even in the oil industry, uh, we look down on and think we have some sort of moral uh, superiority. But it turns out that a number of companies in the, in the not so great uh, sectors, right, that are not working every day for our planet like we claim to do, are actually further ahead in managing a couple of the, the team and the, the personnel topics that also are part, and rightfully so, of sustainability. So that's another thing I shouldn't, uh, I should not only talk about lizards and, and, <laughs> and planting trees, <laughs> but because our team and, and uh, the way uh, we work and, and treat our people is a very essential part of our uh, sustainability commitment as well. Now you have asked me to go a bit broader and also uh, look at the sector. And I think the The planning, the good planning of, of solar power plants, but also on smaller scale systems is, is an obvious one that I basically already mentioned. And I think here, best practice guidelines, advice within the sector and a kind of a, a commitment to provide good quality, well considered and well aligned projects is, is one core element that the sector has to do and where also the, the association solar power europe can absolutely play a, a, a very important role to, uh, to bring this about and also formalize that and, and put it in writing and 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 push this and and inform about it other topics i think if there's plenty but uh, if i can pick one or two i would say the supply chain sustainability the question what happens in the countries and what happens in the factories where the equipment that we use to build solar plants and solar installations on rooftops, etc., what is their impact there? Yeah, and are we causing environmental harm elsewhere to produce equipment that we then 
feel good and and green about here yeah so and clearly given that as you know for sure the solar sector has been undergoing quite some change and also a lot of competitive pressures i mean we used to be the most expensive source of electricity as photovoltaic right so bringing costs down was our single most important responsibility and 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 we've done this with tremendous effect if i think of my first days working for solar power europe or back then epia in 2009 2010 the cost per kilowatt hour was as at least eight fold above what we what we see today and within the course of just 10 12 years i could see how this dropped so this was our focus and if we only focus on on getting it in the cheapest way and buying it from the biggest suppliers well maybe these suppliers then also ultimately needed to cut some corners to withstand that pressure and it's a high time for us now that we are the cheapest source of green electricity if you look at new built power plants in europe absolutely we absolutely have to look at that need to make sure that cutting corners is not possible that there are fair labor conditions in our supply chain and that the environmental standards are met and and are at an appropriately high level yeah also in other countries where where we produce mostly in china but not only and so that's a very important topic the supply chain sustainability another point then maybe the end of the life cycle the topic of recycling is something that will come up increasingly often obviously given that most solar projects were designed to last a minimum of 20 years we always assumed these plants will not be you know decommissioned after 20 years because the technology is better than that in most cases so 25 30 years but still we're now reaching those years where the first installations will be decommissioned where the space that they occupy can be used better by putting new solar plants uh, solar panels on there so now the, the focus will increasingly be what uh, is happening with these decommissioned installations is the is this creating a gigantic pile of complicated waste somewhere yeah will that be shipped off and and abandoned or are those mechanisms that we have developed pv cycle but also other programs of of supply chain responsibility will they hold will will the recycling companies manage to extract the precious materials that are included in those modules and will we be able to show that the material can be reused to a greatest degree and i think the the concept of circular economy which has been around for many many years and many decades is something that we need to embrace as the solar sector as well and it needs to be absolutely clear that there is an answer for the question what will happen in 20 in 25 in 30 years with these modules and not just a promise saying well you know probably there will be some technology then but that can take care of it so we need to make sure that technology is not only available it's also up and running and there to to recycle and to do this also in situ meaning if we talk in europe this needs to also happen in europe we cannot in my view afford to just ship off modules brand them as used electronics for for further use elsewhere and then we never hear from them again that is not an acceptable way that we can 
handle this as a sector. And that's something that for myself and our company, we want to look very detailed into this to make sure that we can uh, be honest to our customers and tell them what happens with the stuff. Mm. That's a helpful overview of, of solar and sustainability. But I'd like to zoom in now a little bit on your personal experience with sustainability. Obviously, sustainability manifests in, in many different ways in your life, but perhaps you can talk a little bit about how you think about sustainability in your day-to-day life and, and how uh, you know maybe things you're doing to leave a, a small carbon footprint and, and things of that nature. Mm. Well, you see, that's for me a, a difficult question. Having been a consultant for 14 years with pretty <laughs> intensive travel and commuting mm-hmm. for my work from Berlin, where my, my family is firmly integrated to Munich, where my team is, right? So, so I mm-hmm. have an above, way above average lifetime emission footprint already. And I can only, and maybe that's what drives me to work to make both of my, my employers compensate carbon emissions. So, so I try to overcompensate on that side <laughs> uh, to, to distract a bit from my uh, personal life as a, yeah, a frequent traveler. I am commuting to Munich now. By train, I had a 100% card where, where I could travel Germany's railway system any day without any uh, further ticket anymore. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. during COVID, that investment didn't pay out because I'm not traveling at all right now. But so switching from flights to train is an obvious one. I'm doing that and also encouraging and supporting this, obviously, for my team and make that a standard. You know, we, we try to, and we live in the outskirts, but we, one car is enough. We live close to public transport. I, if I go to the office in Berlin, there's no, no car involved that, that works differently. I have a garden. We, I plant trees. I, I leave the cuttings for the hedgehogs. I'm actually posting here in the local neighborhood blogs tips about nature-friendly gardening. I built my own birdhouse. This is all tiny stuff. Nothing of this will save the climate or save the, the planet, let's be honest. But that's a way for me to A, relax and, and come come down off the, off the 12 hours of screen time. At the same time, it's a tiny contribution, a tiny example I can set that in my garden, you know, there is a, it's a wilderness. It's not a it's not a well-trimmed English lawn with <laughs> sure. with super straight hedges and only one type of flower. But it's a it's a wilderness. Many of the people who walk by that I hear through the hedge, they think, "When does this cl- guy clean up?" And point is, I never will. <laughs> okay. Well, as a as a final note, I like to ask all my guests for recommendations for our listeners. So is there a book or a documentary or, or, or something else that our listeners could look to to perhaps first learn more about sustainability, but also to learn about solar or renewables in general? If I think of our fundamental challenge and why we do sustainability, I, I would point to maybe two books. One, one is, an, is a classic already. It's over 20 years old, I think. It's a history book, actually, but written by a scientist, Jared Diamond. It's called uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. And to me, it was an absolute eye-opener because it, it took a scientist, a, a natural scientist's view on human history and how the conditions of life actually evolved and, and what made it possible that civilizations emerged. And also, and that's his second book, or is his book, 
it's called collapse, and the title already indicates that it's not ending well, mm. how societies choose to fail or succeed, and it shows how societies have made really bad decisions that led to their ultimate demise, and that civilizations that were stable for dozens of, even for hundreds of years, managed to to kill themselves in a way and to lead to their own destruction. And I think that's a, a reminder to everyone who has, like myself, grown up in in a uh, here in Europe in an age of unprecedented peace and unprecedented prosperity. I'm aware it's not the same in all uh, areas of Europe, unfortunately, but but at least for Western Europe, we can say that this thing is not to be taken for granted. It can collapse. Uh, humankind has done it again and again in history. Yeah, and there are certain patterns of overpopulation, but also of overuse of natural resources and of the resulting conflicts in societies, in wars, in an eruption of migration, an eruption of, of infighting, and then a, a collapse of, of governance systems, of, of democracies, of, of monarchic systems that ultimately have wiped away civilizations and what they have built up in centuries. So by knowing that this has happened before, we need to know it will and it can happen again. And so if all these scientists warn us now that we are destroying the very fundamental life support systems of humankind, this is a warning that is not to be taken lightly. And, and this is ultimately what drives me and where I say we need to do also as BIVRE a lot more and we need to have more a higher sense of urgency and we need to increase our impact because we can and because the situation is as bad that it can ultimately really end in a catastrophic collapse of our societies. Great. Well, I'll add that to my list. Well, that was excellent, encompassing, informative, and, you know, a bit optimistic at the end, though. So that's that's what we like. <laughs> we have great. no choice but to be optimistic. <laughs> so when the, the situation is dire, if we are also in a bad mood about it the whole time, I mean... That would be <laughs> that would be the worst. So yeah, uh, in that sense, uh, yeah, it's fun to work on these topics, and thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about it. Well, thanks, Jochen, and thanks for your time. And I'm sure this will be uh, great for our listeners. So appreciate that. You're welcome. Sustainability means more than simply reducing emissions. To be sustainable requires taking into account the environmental, economic, and social dimension of the entire value chain. Solar Power Europe recently released its first-ever Solar Sustainability Best Practices Benchmark, which investigates key sustainability considerations for the solar sector, presenting state-of-the-art sustainability practices. Discover all the insights of the study at solarpowereurope.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, shine on.